Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. It's your job in that realm, which I would put ourselves in that realm, known comedians who are coming here to be part of the festival. To have a special festival, you have to have some breakout moments for yourself. You have to do things that people are don't know you as that type of comedian. So the roast battle is a perfect example. People haven't seen us roast before. They saw us in the, at the epicenter of the fest three times, three nights in a row, doing, being successful, doing what we do. Like those moments, this is the first time I think in that crop of comedians that we've been at this festival that we've had notable performances and have had a great experience. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited about my episode today with the Scalar Brothers, and you will be too. These guys are incredible, insightful, and double the inspiration. Before I get started, if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz on Instagram or Twitter. Or you can find me wherever social media is found. Just press follow and I'd really appreciate it. And you can get the podcast wherever podcasts are found. Obviously, you found us. So thank you. And if you need to reach me any other place, you can do so on the website at barrycats.com. I'd love to hear from you. Without further ado, let's get to the podcast and introduce the Scalar Brothers. Randy and Jason Scalar, a.k.a. the Scalar Brothers, are a postmodern take on a stand-up comedy duo. They have released six critically acclaimed comedy albums, have had two Comedy Central half-hour present specials, and currently have a one-hour stand-up special on Netflix titled What Are We Talking About? And another one-hour special that premiered on Stars Network in May of 2018 called Hipster Ghosts. Randy and Jason are also writers, directors, and actors, appearing in a wide variety of critically acclaimed hit shows like Entourage, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Better Call Saul, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. 
They are currently recurring characters, the Doctors Green, on True TV's Those Who Can't. However, they are perhaps most well-known for their show Cheap Seats, a cult hit classic that appeared on ESPN Classic Network for 77 episodes. Their popular sports comedy podcast, View from the Cheap Seats, is available on the Starburns Podcast Network. And their hit podcast, Dumb People Town, with co-host Dan Van Kirk, is currently being developed as a narrative animated show with Sony for YouTube Premium. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, live from the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival, Randy and Jason Scalar, a.k.a. the Scalar Brothers. Thanks, Barry. Yeah, thanks, Bear. Thanks for getting us one microphone. That's really nice. I I like it. So sorry. This is a Yaw Buddy production. Uh, We love it and we love you. We've known you for so long. It's really cool to still, for all of us to still be in this business. That's That's a big deal. Well, what I wanted to tell the audience is something that we've talked about a few times and a lot of people don't know this about you guys. So when i was starting in new york as a manager randy and jason were doing something that i had never heard of before i'd never seen done before and amazingly to me it's now 25 years later and i've never seen anybody do it since so what they did and it was in an apartment that was called Surf Reality, I believe, or another room like that, yeah, where you'd surf. walk up in the Lower East Side or wherever it was, up a five-floor walk-up, and there's folding chairs in a living a room. Of no, pit. it was a performance space. It, it felt like that, but it was a performance their, their space. Apart, their apartment was up above. It was Surf Reality. It was on Allen Street, below, like which is 2nd Avenue, when it goes below... Uh, First Avenue before it goes below. I think it was first before it goes below Houston. And it was between Stanton and Rivington, which now is like a fully gentrified area. And it's beautiful. It's the Lower East Side. There's a Whole Foods three fucking blocks away. But this is like, it was gritty. There was a storefront. You remember like the storefront? It would have like one thing of laundry detergent in the storefront and like a brush. And you're like, oh, that's a front for a crack den. Well, well, as a person who didn't know anything, it felt like it was somebody's apartment. So right. what they did was they wrote, created, executive produced, casted, and starred in their own sitcom production and you would go to see it and unbelievably the first half hour was the sitcom that they presented for the first time the week before so they would open up with last week's sitcom have a little intermission and close the show with the second sitcom they wrote there's no papers there's no scripts there's no teleprompter and there's great people coming in and out, like Zach Galifianakis, so many others. Mike Royce did warm up. We had him as like the audience warm. Mike Royce, who ran, you know, ran men of a certain age. I know you know Yeah, Royce executive producer of Everybody, Everybody Loves Raymond. Raymond for years and years. He was great. He was a part of it. And Mike Blyden, who Blyden's an unbelievable director. He directed the whole series of the South Side, that new series. on. And he's a really talented guy. He was on it. Matt Price, Wendy Shanker. I mean, it was great people. 
Yeah, and so we would did we wrote a sitcom for the stage called Double Agents about us being agents for bad talent, and uh, it was really fun. And we had commercials. People like Sloven and Allen did like live commercials or taped pieces. Uh, it was so much fun. And we did a new episode every week. We did it for like a four week run, and it was. For us, it was the kind of thing where we're like, this is a challenge. We're, our, we're devoting ourselves to comedy. We want to create something that no one's ever done before. We didn't expect no one to ever do it again, but uh, it was ambitious, and I'm glad we tried it. And that sitcom, that thing, Double Agents, I think was instrumental in us getting the opportunity to do our MTV show, Apartment 2F, which we put many a Barry Katz client on that show <laughs> as well, which was really fun. And in a weird way, it was a sitcom that had stand up in it and sketch and short films were woven in through the storylines of it. So it allowed us to have like a David Wayne do a short film while here were the standups who were on that show, the 1997 and Galifianakis was a cast member and Michael Showalter was a cast member and Emmy Laybourne was a cast member and Matt Price. Here was who the, uh, who did stand up in that? Okay. Pat Oswalt, Patrice O'Neill, Bill Burr, Jim Norton, Greg Barrett, who else? Arch Barker. Arch Barker. Jordan Rubin. Jordan Rubin. Incredible people who, comedians who've gone on to be ginormous and then other people who've gone on to other things. So we always had that thing of like wanting to create the community and bring the people in. Yeah. And I feel like that was, we talked this about talked about this with you on the plane we were like you know if this is our workplace okay comedy clubs and the comedy scene if that's our office and those are our office mates we want to create community and have it be fun and have it be something somewhere we want to be not this weird cutthroat thing where you are like i'm going to be nice to this guy and then i'm going to talk shit about him behind his back so i can jump him to get to the next thing which is what comedy is for a lot of people or for some people. But for us, we were like, we want to build a community and we still, I feel like we still live by that today. What was your first experience in New York city where you saw the dark side? You saw the comic who cut your legs out from under you and you witnessed it right in front of you and you found the evidence and it happened. And how did you handle it? What was that, Rand? Can you can you imagine it? I mean, I I will say this. I'm not going to name names because I really don't want to do that right now. But we did a bit, one of our earliest bits, uh, one of our earliest bits that we've ever done, and that was like our biggest, most signature bit was this bit we did about chopper ford i don't know if you remember that it was a new york city helicopter that they kept making this big deal about this news helicopter and they had a commercial for it and but we're like it's just a helicopter so they were trying to sensationalize just regular helicopter features that was our whole thing it was this big back and forth bit that we used to do that we started doing and we were really proud of it and it took us a while to write it i would say it took like a year to write it because it was a long bit we kept adding parts and taking parts out and then we got a chance to do Conan for the first time in New York. Was that your first television set? For, uh, it was our, we had done uh, Premium Blend and we had done Premium Blend and then the Louis Anderson. Remember Louis Anderson's yeah, old show they did out at the Santa Monica Pier? So we had done both of those. This was our first late night set. Like 
this was a big, big deal for us. And we were so excited to get it. And Frank Smiley. Of course, uh, the producer. The producer was like, hey, I'm going to come out and watch the set if you want to do it. And so do your best stuff that you've been doing. And, and then we'll get it on. And we'll tell you what to do. So we gave him our set. Chopper 4 was in it. That was our closer. We had another big bit before that and maybe one little small thing because you don't have much time. Four minutes. Late night set is super hard for us because it takes us time to roll out into our bits. And so we were really happy. We're like, Chopper 4 is like the thing. This is a signature bit of ours that like we've been wanting to do for so long. Now, we were in New York in the in the 90s before before DVRs before any of that stuff. And we were out doing comedy every Friday and Saturday night. So we were not watching TV. We were not watching shows like Saturday Night Live or anything like that. This is something we didn't realize. That week that he, oh, he saw us on like a Tuesday and was like, you're going on the show tomorrow. We were like, great. We don't have to wait. That's fantastic. But we didn't realize that that week, uh, SNL did kind of a bit about a news helicopter. Okay. We didn't know it. We didn't see it. We weren't aware of it. And we've been doing Chopper 4 for a year because why would we, if he said, we're going to see you on Tuesday, do a bit that we wrote on Monday to, for our first television set. So we get on Conan. We do the set. I'll never forget. We got on Conan and we went on T We got on TV and my first, I had the first line of the set and I totally blanked. If you watch the set, I blank and I turned to Randy and he picked it up. And when we were off and running, we were fine. We ended with Chopper 4. It was around our birthday. We were out at a bar. I remember with David Wayne in the Lower East Side and a bunch of other people. And show Walter. Show Walter. And the set, we did it at set at 6. And then the show came on at midnight. And, and it was, everyone watched it together. We made the bar turn down the music and watched the set. And it felt so good. And we felt so great about it. And then the next Monday, we were uh, hosting Luna Lounge, which was like the coolest show in new york the best alternative show down on the lower east side and eating it at luna lounge and we were so excited we're like feeling good and on a roll i just want to say when he says eating it that doesn't mean he was bombing that was the name of the show that's right the show is called eating it uh which is great because that was like the best comedy show and people rarely ate it but like that was the name of the show and so we come down there and we're hosting and one of someone comes on who was a writer for SNL and comes down to do the show. And we're hosting that night. And he says, Hey, uh, are you guys, are you guys going to stay in the room for our set? And we were like, yeah, sure. If you want us to, we will. I mean, we weren't necessarily planning cause it's packed and maybe sure. I mean, yes, we'll, we'll stay in. And he's like, you definitely want to stay in for this set. You definitely want to be there. We were like, okay, that seems weird. And then he gets up on stage with another guy and they proceed to do the meanest like impression of us, which the audience doesn't get and they don't like. They're like, we're the Slar brothers. And, you know, here's our question. Like what it, if, you know, a plane goes down and you can find the black box and then they both at the same time are like, why don't they make the plane out of the black box? Like tr- doing clearly like hacky stuff. No one was laughing. It was very odd. We're standing in there going like this feels like an attack. It feels like an attack. And we're like, I don't know you very well. So I don't understand what's happening. So after the set, we bring up the next person. We're shaken because this is a more established comedian. This is someone who we've known We've seen on TV before, but he's a, and we liked, we liked his comedy. 
We had no beef with him. Never, never, not once. We come outside in the bar and he comes outside and he's like, did you watch it? Did you see it? We're like, yeah, we, we saw it. Is there something you want to say to us? And we're 25 or yeah. we 25 years old. We're yeah. young, no, 23. 23, 24. We are like uh, nervous 25. and we're like, I don't, you know, what are you trying to say? And we wanted him to say it. We knew what he was suggesting and we started to put the pieces together, you know, in our minds that he thought that their chopper for whatever commercial was on SNL. And then they were sitting in eight H probably writing for the, or, you know, in their offices writing for the next week. And they're watching the Conan feed of us do our set. And they're probably like, that's similar to something we just did on the show. And these guys are thieves. Now the implausibility of that and the, and the impossibility of that is any comic knows that which is which to this day makes me mad that that person wouldn't even realize that and would suggest such a thing and we were really mad and we were like are you saying we stole the bit like now it's confrontational we're in the middle of hosting the show and sweating and upset and feel hurt and feel you know if you get accused of something if you didn't do it you start to like feel really on the spot and we were like, why is this person trying to take us down? We felt super attacked. We were so upset about it. We never got the answer we wanted. And then we, and we had a great set, first set on Conan. We did not do Conan again until 2012. So that's 15 years blackballed from a show that we should have been regularly going on and doing stand-up sets. And then maybe starting to do panel. Now, that maybe it would have changed our career. Maybe it wouldn't have. I don't know what they told Conan. But any time we had TV stuff that we wanted to promote, 2003 to 2006, when we were doing our show Cheap Seats on ESPN Classic, we would have been great secondary guests. We could have come on and done, brought some of our funny, silly sports and made fun of it on the show. It would have been a different thing. We pitched it over and over again. People are like, yeah, it's a great idea, great idea. And then all of a sudden we get up to someone and they'd be like, sorry, it's not going to work out. So this person, for whatever reason we don't know, poisoned the well at a, at a show that we loved, that we were, and to this day, love. Love it and love comics who write for it. We feel like Conan's like the gold standard of like the kind of comedy we tried to do on TV. And we watched the show. We were fans of the show. And we felt like that felt like the, our first introduction to people for whatever reason, trying to knock you down. The opposite of what we tried to do. Yeah, that was, that was really hard. I mean, there are other examples, but, you know, I mean, that was part of it, which is just weird because we never put that energy out there in the world. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day 
instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And for the audience, just so you know, Conan was one of the head writers of Saturday Night Live and one of a big part of Saturday Night Live. And his show, the Conan show at the time on NBC, filmed in the exact same building as Saturday Night Live, just one or two floors down. So there was a big camaraderie between SNL, and it was easy for him to find out that information from somebody on the show. Certainly between the writers, because all the you know, there's only a handful of writing jobs in New York. You know this, and all the comedy writers know each other. Especially if you're in the same building, you hang out and you're talking. And What's ironic about that is that. As all the comedians know, throughout the years, sitcom writers used to go to the comedy clubs and sit in the comedy clubs and listen to great jokes and then rewrite them and put them as tags for things in a lot of sitcoms. It's crazy. I mean, what's insane about that and what you say is like, yeah, how do we know, like, how do we know it wasn't the other way around? How, how do we know that someone didn't see us do that bit eight, that, we've been eight, do, that we've been doing, doing for a year? Like, why can't we be the ones to be like, why is that on your show? Now, conversely, mm-hmm. when was the first time somebody stole something from you and you had to confront them? Has, has anyone, has anyone stole anything from us? Um, I mean, the key is if someone can steal something from you and make it their own, you probably shouldn't have been doing it or you're not doing it the right way. You know what I mean? If It's maybe a joke that doesn't really say enough about you. I mean, you can have observations and work certain things, but you should always be asking yourself, why, how does this joke relate to me? How does this observation relate to me? Because then when you make it relate to you in a certain way, then it should be unstealable. You know, now there are moments where if we're going down a path that somebody else has gone down and if that ever comes to light for us, we're always like, oh, shit, we won't do it anymore. That's fine. I didn't realize you were doing that thing. Too. As soon as it comes to light, we're always we are very deferential. We're like, oh, we, we can come up with something new. Or we say if it's something that's a really integral part to a really important bit of ours, we're like, how do we now take this and change it so that it's different? Hey, everybody, and I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount, a $100 discount, and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the air doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like, but the air inside my house 
it feels heavy at times before I got this product. And now it got rid of all the bad air in my house, the dust, the pet hair, the pollen. It just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home. And for me, when I got this product, it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house. And it's normally $600. And you can check Amazon right now and you'll see. But for all of you listening today, I can offer you $300 off. $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry, and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. Now, a lot of times you guys talk about community and how there's a togetherness and how there's just this bond. And what's this crazy thing when you watch a roast battle with you guys and another person roasting you? The mantra of the Friars Club and Jeffrey Ross and I, which a lot of people don't know, we brought the Friars Club to Comedy Central. We put them together and that's how the roasts started and the franchise started 17 years ago and the mantra of the roast from henny youngman and milton burl i remember the first time i saw roast milton burl was hosting in front of 2000 people first thing he says is i just want to let everybody know that i won't be saying the word fuck because i don't want to be reminded of what i can't do anymore mm-hmm. that's great he and, roasted himself and so he took the time to be self-deprecating and roast himself. On the roast battles, first of all, the mantra is from the Friars, we only roast the ones we love. Right. But that's not said in the roast battle. That mantra isn't said in the roast battle all the time. And so I watch you guys roasting people, and I watch them roasting you. And the thing about roasting, and for the audience who doesn't really know this, is that unbelievably a lot of roasting is honest comedy it's like an honest snapshot of the person and you're dissecting every part of what they are or what they do and so it's like shining a mirror it's on brutal so like last night somebody said something about you guys they said so many different things but then they attacked your physical Stature, Yeah. Jim Jeffries. It was Jim Jeffries. I mean, Jim was just going on and on. Like, you guys are getting fat in the same way. And you're and I was like, so someday we'll both be as fat as you. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, But like, you know, I was like, what? What do you? He kept on going on and on and on to where Moses had to be like, I love the podcast you started doing in the middle of this show, Jim. It's funny because we got attacked. I felt like more by the judges even then. And that's what I wanted to share is that you can't see yourselves because you don't have a mirror on yourselves. That's right. But when that happened from the judges table, your expressions changed on stage. And I felt like you were hurt by what they were saying. Am I wrong? You are not wrong. I feel like we had so much fun in that roast. Well, we should explain. We came to Montreal not expecting to be roasting anyone. We've only roast, done one roast in our lives, roast battle. We battled each other, and we understood that we were going to be real. 
But then at the same time, we were going to be respectful of each other, but we were going to find funny comedic things and flaws within each other. And they, they thought that would be a unique battle. Jeff did on Comedy Central and we did it. So then we saw Jeff a few weeks ago and he said, I want you to do something in, in the roast battle up in Montreal. Do you want to maybe just do your battle again and add some new jokes and roast each other and have that be part of, you know, have that be part of our, an exhibition in our thing. We said, yes, Jeff, we'll definitely do that. Then two days before we or a day before we got to Montreal, we got a note saying you're roasting Brad Williams. And we thought, wait, that's a mistake because we weren't supposed to roast Brad Williams. And then we realized, oh, maybe we heard that Brad Williams was maybe going to roast Blake Griffin in the tournament. Well, maybe Blake Griffin is now out of the tournament and they need someone to roast Brad Williams. Okay, so that's not what we came here to do. We have so many other things we have to prepare for at this thing. And to roast a disabled guy. Uh, I mean, he's not disabled. He's... uh, I mean, what do you? He's a dwarf, but he would say because he has disability, he has a handicap plate. So, so he's he's a dwarf. He is so funny. He's one of the most. He's one of the most amazing funny. comics out there, and he's a friend of ours. We have gone through stuff together. We have connected with him on deep personal stuff. We love him. So back to what you were saying before, we only roast the ones we love. Randy and I thought, okay, we can do this. Let's see if we can write some jokes about Brad and make them fun and make them loving and even make them harsh. And then we'll hug him at the end. It doesn't matter if we win or lose. We actually thought we were going to lose because like Brad is so likable and so lovable. And like you come on stage and it's like two dudes like and one dwarf. And it looks like it's two on one or two on one half. Um, And no two and a half men joke. There was Moses made a two and a half men joke. But like we were saying to ourselves. This, the optics of this are bad. We are walking onto the stage and we're down a touchdown before the game even starts. So our jokes have to be great. I felt like we had our best jokes were for that battle. We had a great time doing it. It was so much fun. It was a close battle because he had some great jokes in there. But we won. So we won, which is a blessing and a curse. Because as soon as you win in a tournament-style format here in Montreal, you have to battle the next night. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
Now, in that battle, Brad did something that shocked me. The last joke he does is he goes after an area of your lives that's very, very personal. I thought to myself, and I didn't get a chance to ask him the question, he didn't have to go there. He's not that kind of comic. Not at all. He never would do that before, but he did it that night. And I wondered if you felt like, wow, I'm surprised he did this. Or was it a thing where you guys have the relationship where it doesn't matter? I was not surprised that he did. But in my mind, I'm like, you just lost. I'm like, you touched the third rail. There's no way to do that, to get into stuff like that and win. And he didn't. And so the next night, when the next comic also tried to do the same thing on his last joke, I knew he was done. So, you know, again, that's his choice. And that's the choice of the, of the roaster. You know, I guess you get into the situation. What you realize is that, and this is what we didn't like. What I loved about the Brad Williams battle was that even though you felt like people were pulling for Brad, it, we also felt like people were pulling for us or pulling for a good fight. The next night when we were battling uh, a young British comic who is so funny, Finn Taylor, very, very funny comic. Incredible. He owned his first battle. He destroyed his first battle. And did you feel like up until that last joke where he made the mistake, did you feel like you were maybe on the ropes? No, I felt like we were on the ropes in the after the first joke. Uh, he did a big joke like about... Uh, plowing through twin towers like, yes. as a foreigner killed. And, and killed big 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 reaction humongous like all, what was crazy was i was like that's a great joke but the reaction almost like was shocking about how big it was so in that moment we got the feeling that the crowd wanted him to win and that's a rare weird feeling when you're doing stand-up because stand-up is inherently just you and the audience and you trying to connect with the audience but to have a microphone in our hands and to be doing jokes, but to be doing it against someone and to feel the audience pulling for that person instead of us, I felt like we were a little bit on the ropes at that moment. But I knew our jokes were really solid. I was really happy with what we were going to do. And I was like, I don't know that we'll get a laugh as big as what he just got, but I know that all our jokes are strong. And so we started going through the jokes and then and then he, I'll finish this and then you can take it. Stop trying to take the mic. No. Uh, and then he, so his first joke was that. His second joke was, in my opinion, a not great Mary-Kate and Ashley. This really told you where the audience was. He's like, you guys look like Mary-Kate and Ashley if transitioning into two hipsters if they cut their tits off and made two tiny penises with them. You're like, all right, that's a Mary-Kate and Ashley joke. Kind of easy. But the crowd went nuts again and you were like, all right, they are clearly pulling for this they guy. They didn't go as nuts as the first one, but then he kept going and did a long joke about how a penis, when transitioned and put on you, becomes a whole thing, and he read a whole thing. By the way, he's reading it, and we're, we've learned our jokes, and we've got them memorized, and he's reading, which I think is... So he's reading, 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 that gets to a no-laugh or a low-laugh moment. We come back and have... A decent one. A good one. Good one. No, yeah, that was so white is the next ones. Uh, I think ours was okay. And then, no, no. Yeah, ours was, was the it. third one. And then the next one, 
um, oh, we had a good one a reaction. We had a thing about how you're just mad because our Brexit worked. And we had a couple other like good little quick one liners that were good hits. And then we had an OK one and then we ended strong. And he ended with a horrible. He went after the miscarriage thing again, grabbed the third rail and ended in down. And then, you know, there and just no laughs, like just completely bond. You can't have two great ones. One. Th- if you were to add it up on points, let's say the first one was a 10. The second one was a nine. Give it a nine if you want. And the third one was a five. And the last one was a one. Ten, nine. One's being generous. It was a Ten, nine, five, one. Give it to that. I thought all of ours were like sevens. So four jokes, and that's that's 28. You know what I mean? That's 28 versus 20. We won. We won the battle. And Jeff was like, you cannot go down that far at the end and lose it. You you, you have to be consistent and close out. You got to close it out. You got to close it out. So we understood that, and we're like, okay, we're moving on. Audience did not agree with it but jeff was like you know fuck that shit like you guys you guys should have moved on but but it definitely didn't feel as good as the brad williams roast because we didn't know this guy there was no love between us like brad we lifted him up and hugged him at the end and we were like this guy we became we became friends with him afterwards and he was great like we now like him i really think he's a great dude and And we helped him write jokes helped him write jokes for the next night he kind of helped us work through our set so the reward for beating that guy which was somewhat controversial was to then go roast jimmy carr who is if you want to say the best roaster in the world i think he's you would you could argue that he's as far as like he's been in so many roast competitions he's done it he's the reigning champion here in montreal he's done it in england he's done it in america he's been on seasons of the tv show he's just he is designed for that that fits his joke writing style he's done it for a long time and again we had one roast of each other in our lives the second roast in our lives was brad williams the third roast was this guy and then we have 24 hours to write jokes or 22 hours to write jokes. They get their jokes at three in the morning, the day of the rose. That's when we start writing. That's when we start writing jokes. And then you write throughout the whole next day and into the night. And it becomes a weird process of you get five jokes and we wrote probably 30 for Jimmy and wrote with friends and you know asked for ideas and we kind of collaborated on some stuff and we definitely took suggestions from people and we worked super hard on it and I think we made some choices at the last minute when we heard new jokes that felt stronger and more edgier than what we had. We made choices to go with those jokes that may or may not have been right, but I also feel like we had no chance to win. Bama, you had no chance. No, we to didn't win. feel like we had no chance to win. I'll tell you the moment that I knew we were going to lose when we wa- were introduced on stage. We were introduced on stage, and Jimmy comes out, and it is like he got the reaction of someone who has won all these things before. People were going nuts. There is also a sentiment in Canada where you want to see the Americans lose. There's a little bit of that in there too. Plus, there's two of us, and there's one of him. Yeah, but you beat Finn. I, I know, and, and I, but we were up against that a little bit, too. So then we come out here, and we're like, and then we come out, and the reaction is nice, but it's nowhere near where he is. So if you were to set, like, the, the reaction dials were set right there. You're like, this is what it is. We have to overcome so much just to, just to be in it with him, and we know his jokes are going to be good. So he goes, and he does his set, and two of his jokes were Holocaust or Jewish jokes, and then two of his jokes were about how 
neither of us is the more talented one. So he and he's reading them, which is what he does. He reads from a clipboard. So, I mean, what, what we should have said on stage is, yeah, we may be the same person, but that's the same fucking joke that you just told uh, over. You know, you just told it in two different ways. We came at it from like such a different angle. We had jokes about the fact that he's the, we basically all the jokes described him as an anti-Semite. You know, a, a racist, anti-Semitic, closeted pedophilia, you know, pedophile. pedophile, which is may or may not be true, but it's the way he sees himself. <laughs> uh, so, you know, like we those are our jokes coming from so many different angles and they came from different performative elements. We memorize them all. We learn them. We perform them. We had comebacks of like we made fun of his laugh when he laughed and we and that got a huge hit we said he looks so comfortable but of course he's used to getting double teamed by two dudes when he's on the road we had the joke at the very beginning of like i loved you as the evil dummy in toy story 4 boom 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 these are little things that came he just read five jokes from a clipboard two of them were alike the other two were alike and it was like and the first one was all about us being nice and not funny so and really, the undercurrent theme is that we're not funny and not talented comedians throughout. It's so like it was the same idea and the same trope over and over. We're attacking this. We're attacking that. We're attacking all this other stuff. We maybe made the wrong choice for our last joke. We second guessed what we could have slid in there. And we have a few that we should have done. But we finished it and we were feeling good. Like you said, we felt good about what we know, did. I just want to know before the last joke. I thought you were even his last joke did not do great either. By the way, his last joke did not do great either. So ours was fine and his was fine. Ours didn't get as much as him. But again, I feel like because of where we were at the very beginning and what people wanted out of it. So then came the judging and Jim Jeffries is a friend of ours. Neil Brennan is a friend of ours. Michael Che is someone who we know and like and have respect for. All three of them took the opportunity to, as you do, because we've celebrity judge roast, roast the people that are on stage. None of the roasting was for Jimmy. All of it was at the two of us. And they basically shat on us for the next little period of time. That And it wasn't funny. Neil's joke wasn't funny and Neil's hilarious. Jim's thing was so rambling and mean and like, you're going to die before him. Are you going to shrivel up and you guys are fat in the same way and blah, blah, blah. And so much so that Moses was like, uh, yeah. great podcast that you started in the middle of this show, Jim, which got a huge laugh. Also, Moses twice before it ended or in the judging said, let's go for one more. Let's go to overtime because he, Moses knows these battles. He knows what's even and what's not in his brain. It was even. So he said, it's even, it's even. So to stay and to hear Michael Che then say, I like seeing one white dude fail, but then watching two white guys fail and you're walking around and pacing the back and forth and saying this and that. We were like, that's actually a miscarriage. In our brains, you're, what you saw in our faces was, that's a mischaracterization of what just happened. We didn't fail up here. We took some serious shots. What I wanted was one judge to stand up and say, okay, let me just real talk and say this, what just happened here. You guys lost when you walked out on stage because the audience wanted him to win. Let's take the audience out of it and look at what actually happened on stage. Jimmy, you read from a thing. I know that's what you do, but memorize your fucking jokes. If you're the roast, the greatest roaster of all time, learn your fucking jokes. These guys learned them. Number two, 
uh, you did three jokes. You're, all your jokes are on the same topic, and two of them were alike, and the other two were alike. They came at it from different angles. You had no comebacks in between. They reacted to your laugh in the middle and landed a big one. They reacted another time and landed a big one, and their one right before the whole thing started about you looking like a dummy. Those were good, and all of those landed. This was a much closer fight and a much closer battle than this audience who wanted Jimmy from the beginning. This is a much closer battle than this audience would have told you it was. And I'm telling you because I'm an experienced judge and I can tell you what I saw up there that's the way I felt that's what we wanted Michael Che to say instead of ripping the shit out of the two of us because it was easy and you know again I love Michael Che and we go back downstairs after that whole thing happens and Jim Jeffries is like hey man can I get on your live Largo show and we're like yeah of course you know like we don't give a shit about that but in the moment it just felt like that's a bad characterization of so we had just gone through a battle where this guy just ripped the shit out of us for just called us unfunny and untalented the whole time. Audience is loving it because they're like, yeah, we want to see you rip these guys, these, this freak act apart. Then the judges continue to go in it. So all of that feel, all of that felt really not great. And we came downstairs and we're like, that's not why we came. And it consumed our whole day to come up with those jokes and took away from other things that we could be doing at the festival. That being said, it is great that we were on three nights. I, a lot of people have come up to us today and said what you said, that I thought it was a lot closer than what was talked about. And, you know, I'm glad we don't have to write jokes for K. Trevor or Williams. I mean, like, that or Wilson. I mean, I'm so happy we don't have to do that. But like, you know, it, it still was it didn't feel great like that. That whole aspect of it didn't feel great. I felt like someone should have told it like it was up there and they didn't. And I think it comes back to what we were saying. It's like I, we did it for Jeff. We did it. For, we, we agreed. We did, it for community. we did it for community. And then we didn't feel that return from the community which what about we don't, the financial return did you feel anything for that for the financial return for what we'll get out of this for doing the three rows three rows no return no financial return there's no financial return for doing the roasts you don't get financially paid for doing the rows you're a performer on a sold out show we'll find out about that barry you should talk to them as our manager are you kidding me you don't get paid for doing a set as a stand-up you do a set they say hey we're adding you to the fucking best of the fest you're working for 18 straight hours I on agree. a roast three times that's over 50 hours you're working and you're not getting paid i mean the crazy thing is bear we've now been to this the first time we came to this festival was 1999 okay and we were too young to really understand how this festival worked or what we needed to get out of it or be good. And we had an okay set. It was fine. Then we came five years ago and we had a mixture of sets. So that was the next time we came. We hadn't been here. We'd been to Aspen twice when that was big in the late nineties, but we had been to, uh, you know, moon tower comedy festival, which we've done a bunch, which we are staples on. We come every year. And we came five years ago and had an okay television taping, an okay set warming up for it, and two other shows that were good. So we did four shows, two were good, and two were not good. And then that was five years ago. Then we came two years ago, and we had grown so much over time. And this, we actually had really good shows two years ago. We did PK Subban's huge gala. And it was great. We did the warm up for that was really great. And then two other shows and other things we did or three other things we did were good. So we had a good one. But the shows we were in were kind of more on the fringe of the festival. We didn't make a big impact on the festival this time. 
doing the roast and being there and being at the center of it and having just like this is the first time where tons of people off of other things we've done like the dark tank podcast that we did which was really good improv for humans which we did which was really good our set last night our tagit show which we you know where which is really truly who we are where comedians come up and do seven minutes of material we're writing tags for them on the side in real time we come on stage and pitch them our tags joe list is now using one of the tags we did at, to close his set out and Rachel Bloom is using stuff and Beth Stelling is going to use stuff. Adam K. Now, Mateo Lane is like, oh, my God, I'm using all these tags. That you guys pitch me. That is a beautiful show about collaborations, about what we do. We had all those all of those things and people come to those. So we have had more of an impact at this it's built, you know, it's taken us 20 years, 99 till now, 20 years and four times coming to this festival to build to where we are right now. And I think there are, I was trying to explain this to someone else and Barry, maybe you can agree or disagree with me, but I think there are four types of comics that come to this festival. Okay. There are people who are up and coming new faces who TV networks and management and agents are getting excited about who is the breakout new face, the new star. There's that crop of people who do have we not really heard of who is just breaking out at this festival. And I know there are some people like that. Then you have the massive stars who are just coming to do galas and they're coming to be here in front of like 3000 people. And because this is where the best comedians in the world come and you have the biggest, best comedians in the world doing giant sets of comedy. That's the second type of comedian. The third type of comedian I think that you have is, uh, uh, maybe it's just three. The third type is a larger pool of comedians who've been working in the business who the industry already knows, who are coming to work on either an interesting show idea that they have or a podcast that they have or to come onto a panel and do some stand-up here and there. But you're not going to be like, the whole industry isn't going to be like, who are these guys or who's this guy or what's this? But it's your job in that realm, which I would put ourselves in that realm, known comedians who are coming here to be part of the festival. To have a special festival, you have to have some breakout moments for yourself. You have to do things that people are don't know you as that type of comedian. So the roast battle is a perfect example. People haven't seen us roast before. They saw us in the, at the epicenter of the fest three times, three nights in a row, doing, being successful, doing what we do. Like those moments, this is the first time I think in that crop of comedians that we've been at this festival that we've had notable performances and have had a great experience. So it feels like a, it's been a great festival. Yeah, I feel like in that will hopefully in a more abstract sense, pay dividends. But yeah, we should be getting paid more money for all the work we put in. But like, it still was, a, it still has been a really, really, really good fest for us. I mean, people are like coming up to us going like, I just loved what you did. I saw you. I love what you did. And that again, we've been here before. That has not, that has not happened with the frequency with which it is happening right now. Respect that last cash. Yeah. I guess so, but I would still love that. I can't write a check to my uh, nanny and just sign it. Uh, respect. <laughs> she needs money. 
And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. Randy and I can have the worst day ever. The worst news about a project falling apart. The worst news about a fight with your family. The worst news about everything. Jay, worry and fear about your own children. And you step on stage and do a new bit for five minutes or and get some laughs. And you're like, we're dumb enough to let that fuel us to the next thing. Yeah. We have enough just stupid sense to be like, okay, we're still good. We got it. We, we still, got, still it. got it. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave... Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.